to From Scrubs to Scrubs. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Alicia. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to try and understand the impact they have on us as women in medicine and as women in general. From Scrubs to Scrubs is part of the Asa Collective, a podcasting network working towards the goal of creating, increasing the representation and influence of women's voices worldwide. Today, we're coming at you with a special episode. We got to sit down over Zoom, of course, with Dr. Stephanie Fabian from the Mayo Clinic in collaboration with a podcast called Leading the Rounds. Hey, everyone. This is Peter from Leading the Rounds. Hey, guys. I'm Caleb from Leading the Rounds, and we are a medical student-run podcast that looks at leadership in medicine. We have physicians and other people in leadership on our podcast to discuss ideas surrounding leadership in medicine. And we're really looking forward to this episode of From Skirts to Scrubs. Dr. Fabian is an internal medicine physician at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, whose broad interest is in women's health, but whose work is primarily in evaluating and treating women with menopausal, hormonal, and sexual health concerns. She is the Penny and Bill George Director of the Mayo Clinic Center for Women's Health and the Director of the North American Menopause Society. She's passionate about research and building the evidence base so that clinical practice can be rooted in evidence-based medicine. And her research group developed a clinical database called the Data Registry on Experiences of Aging, Menopause, and Sexuality, also known as DREAMS. This database has years of longitudinal data with over 7,000 patients and is the basis of many large research projects. Yeah, so we talked to Dr. Fabian about her research and work in the clinic where she treats women across many ages with health concerns relating to menopause and sexual dysfunction. And our friends at Leading the Rounds talked with her and us about her journey through leadership and perspectives she's developed along the way. But before we get into the interview, we wanted to just give a bit of a background on the content of her work to give you all some information before listening to our conversation with Dr. Fabian, and we hope that you enjoy it as much as we have. Shall we get into it, Alicia? Yes, let's do it. So we are definitely going to do another episode dedicated just to menopause, and therefore I don't want to get too much into the history of it. but. What I do want to remind us of as we start talking about menopause and low sexual desire, which are two areas that Dr. Fabian works in, is that both of those things are really poorly understood. It's actually kind of funny because we are learning about menopause in my med school right now in my class. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it was actually really nice to learn about the science of it and then write this little introduction portion. But essentially, menopause is defined as going 12 months without a period. And most of the changes that a person assigned female at birth goes through um, usually occurs in their 50s. That's when menopause usually occurs, like average age is 51 years old. And they are usually a result of decreased estrogen production from just the fact that as you age, you have fewer eggs and fewer follicles from which your eggs come from. And those are just a big source of hormones for us. And so women, as a consequence, will have hot flashes, vaginal dryness, increased risk of atherosclerosis, and osteoporosis. 
And these are just some of the symptoms of menopause, but aging and menopause go together. And we want aging to be this amazing, glamorous thing, but it's not. Mm. I mean, there are definitely beautiful things about aging for sure. Do not get me wrong there. But in the societal sense of beauty and what we classify as beautiful or what we value, aging doesn't lend to that, which is why we don't often talk about or put emphasis on menopause because it's something that we want to brush under the rug. And as women enter menopause, the crux of the matter is that they are no longer able to bear children, which is something that our society cares about. That is something that gives women value. And so I think inherently it's seen as something that's unwanted or unwelcome. And there are many misconceptions about menopause that Dr. Fabian is going to talk about more in our discussion, but we just wanted to give you some ideas of the discourse that exists around menopause and discussing it. Yeah. And then the other topic that we talked on with Dr. Fabian is another area of her research relating to female sexual dysfunction. And what we talk about in the discussion really puts into clinical context some of what we covered in our episode on fulbertserin. But as a reminder, low sexual function in women is not an uncommon issue, and yet it is rarely discussed. So Dr. Fabian talked with us about how we diagnose this concern in women and what factors play into that. We absolutely love chatting with her and Peter and Caleb from Leading the Rounds, and we hope that you enjoy hearing it too. So let's get into that conversation. Why don't Let's we? Let's get into it. Okay. Yay. Dr. Fabian, thank you for joining us. Um, first of all, how are you doing today? I'm, I'm great. Thank you for inviting good. me. Happy to be here. Good. Now, now that we're all good, um, why don't you start by giving our, our listeners a brief introduction to your leadership background and how you found yourself to be a woman leader in medicine? Wow. Okay. That's a, that's a long question. Um, well, my, I guess my leadership background, my, my official titles are I'm professor and chair of the Department of Internal Medicine uh, at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville. And my leadership journey probably started um, I would guess about 10 years ago. And, and I will preface this by saying that I was a single mother of three children and uh, raised three young girls and did not engage much beyond getting to my job and getting home and taking care of my kids until my youngest child was in middle school. Um, and then I started um, you know, saying yes to things and, and uh, joining the committee when asked and writing the paper when offered. And uh, as you know, I turned in things that, that were higher quality, um, I got more opportunities. And so the offers kept coming and that led to leadership roles. And so I, I uh, ended up leading our women's health clinic and then ended up there transitioning to leading our executive and international health program. And from there taking this role, and I also have a national role as medical director of the North American Menopause Society, and I lead our Women's Health Center. It's the, I'm the um, Penny and Bill George director of the Mayo Clinic Center for Women's Health as well. So leadership roles lead to other leadership roles, I guess is my, my explanation for that. So going off of that a little bit, um, we're wondering, especially with your role um, as head of the Women's Health Center at Mayo Clinic, where do you see 
that center, or can you explain it a little bit, I guess? And then where do you see women's health going in terms of becoming part of more general medicine and not just OB-GYN? Because I think when people think of women's health, their first thought is OB-GYN and not that women's health is just a part of medicine in general. So how do you see, I guess, your department, your role being influential in that? Yes, that's a really good point. Um, I think, you know, my my whole um, take on women's health, I'm an internist, first of all, I'm not an OB-GYN. And, uh, and I think you have to really look at women's health through the sex and gender lens. And, you know, this is convincing everyone uh, that it's not just king medicine. And so it's uh, constantly educating our colleagues. Um, and that's at every level. Um, and then women themselves that, that we need to look at our health through those lenses that I spoke of. And, and it's so important because even going back and looking at the research that's been done, we're still looking at most medical conditions, most drugs, most procedures, most um, medical tests, devices, et cetera, have been tested in men. Um, and we need to move beyond uh, that concept for precision medicine to truly be precise. We have to, we have to look at it through a sex and gender lens. Um, so we're just at the very, very beginning of being able to do that. And it wasn't until 2016 that the NIH actually mandated that we even report the sex of the cell or the animal or the human that we were doing research in. So it's not really surprising that we've ended up where we are, where uh, a lot of the drugs, for example, uh, of, of the drugs re removed from the market in the last 20 years, the majority have been because of side effects in women because they were never actually tested in women. So um, I think at, at, every, at every level, we need to be considering sex as a factor. And, um, and I just gave a lecture to our medical students and they, they were a little suspicious about the whole lecture because it was um, moving toward precision medicine, what's the importance of sex, S-E-X-X, -X, and they were thinking they were getting a sexual health talk. Um, so it took some time to explain that, no, no, we really need to like shift the way we think about this. So other than including more women in research studies, what are some things that you think we need to further progress in, uh, including women's health in medicine? Um, well, my, my area of interest is in menopause and sexual health. And I think there are a lot of misconceptions about menopause. So that's something I'm really interested in and in, in passionate about talking about. There, first of all, um, menopause is a cardiovascular risk factor. And a lot of people don't realize that, that you take a 53-year-old woman who is menopausal and one who isn't, and the one who is menopausal is at higher risk of heart disease, which is now is the number one killer of women. Um, hot flashes are a marker for heart disease risk. Uh, a lot of people don't know that. And we used to tell women, you know, pretty much pat them on the head and say, oh, these will only last for a year or two. They'll be fine. They're benign. Well, they're neither short lasting nor are they benign. The majority of women will have hot flashes and night sweats for seven to nine years, that's the mean, um, and a good third of women will hot flash for a decade or longer. So I think um, putting aside some of these misconceptions um, and then getting into the whole discussion about hormone therapy, which is, which is another uh, lengthy discussion, and it's, it's not the evil drug that it's reported to be. Um, so then, then we get into sexual health. It's another area that, that um, is of interest to me and that has a lot of misconceptions about and, and people are just afraid to talk about it. And it's such an integral part of health uh, that, you know, I, I really enjoy um, 
seeing my patients, but I also enjoy teaching uh, about it because if you remove that stigma associated with it, then then all of us as providers can talk about it without being embarrassed. And, and it really makes a huge difference in the lives of our patients. Yeah, actually, Dr. Fabian, going off of that, so um, on our podcast, we actually did an entire episode on phlebanserin, yeah. which was very, very fun. I'm interested in the historical roots of issues of low sexual desire and how women face those issues and juxtaposing that to a male-centered approach that exists when we're talking about sexual desire and dysfunction. I'm wondering how you approach parsing through a female patient's low sexual desire. How do you start those conversations? And I'm just interested in your thought process of um, when you're meeting with a woman who comes to you with issues of low sexual desire, how you speak with her and what things are going through your head as you're deciding how you can potentially help her. Uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, so that's about an hour long appointment um, to, to go through that. Um, but, you know, first of all, if a woman's in my office for that problem, then she's already overcome the barrier of being able to ask for help about it. And it, and it could be that her partner has asked her to come in. Or it could be that she thinks there's something wrong with her, um, or it could be that she's very distressed by it. And so the first question is really, what is your concern, um, and that, and and why did you come in? So is it a is it a problem that my partner made me come, and I'm not really I don't think it's a problem, or is it I really think this is an issue and it's really disturbing me. Um, and so then as we walk through the history, it's a medical history like any other medical history. And I try to tell, talk to students about this when I'm teaching it, that you need to think of it as abdominal pain. I mean, you really need to think of it as when did it start? What brings it on? What makes it better? Um, what relieves it? Where does it, does it, is it only in one particular circumstance with one particular partner? Does it happen all the time? Uh, you know, so it's really think about it as as a general history taking like anything else. And that sort of just stigmatizes it for you as the provider. Um, so we walk through all of those things. And then we go by what we call a biopsychosocial model. So we look at the biological. Those are four categories. We look at the biological. That's the medical stuff that can get involved. That's the, that's hormone changes. That's a history of pelvic surgeries. That's a history of diabetes that might affect blood flow. That's a history of dementia, heart disease, anything, all of those things can impact sexual function. And then we get into the psychological piece, and that would be anything from stress to a history of anxiety or depression. Our sex therapist was great. She always used to describe anxiety as sort of the, the, the killer of sexual desire for men or women, really, it doesn't matter. But she said, think of it this way, you know, when you're, you have a high anxiety level, it's fight or flight. Um, so if you're always in that fight or flight mode, you know, and your heart's racing and you think somebody's chasing you, think of yourself in caveman days. Are you going to lions chasing you, right? You're going to die. Are you going to lie down in the grass and roll and have sex right then? No, no, you're not. Um, you're stressed. So, so an anxious person is not going to have sex. Um, and so anxiety, depression, stress, uh, substance abuse, um, a history of abuse of any type, all of that would kind of go in that category. Um, the third category is uh, relationship factors. So who is your partner? Do you have one partner? Do you have many partners? Who's the partner? Is there good communication? What's the quality of the relationship? What are the logistics like? We had 
one patient who came in and said she had low sexual desire, it turned out that, you know, she worked nights or husband worked days. They were never even together in the same room. Um, so part of it can be logistics. Um, uh, another woman had three young children and um, not only did she not have a lock on the door, she didn't have a bedroom door. There was no bedroom door, so they had no privacy. So you really have to kind of get into what, what is going on in the, in the family and the relationship. Um, has there been infidelity? Um, is there partner sexual dysfunction? One of the biggest causes of female sexual dysfunction is actually male sexual dysfunction. Um, and beyond male sexual dysfunction, male health. So the partner's health is important. And if there's medical illness or psychological illness in the partner, it can have a huge impact on the woman's sexual health. Um, and then the final category categories is sociocultural. Um, and so that's how your family of origin um, thought about sex, how, what you were taught about sex, what your religion teaches you about sex, what our culture teaches us about sex. And so th those things can play a significant role. So after we've walked through those four categories, I usually make a list with the patient of the top three or four or five things that are contributing, and there's almost always more than one. And then we rank order them. And we say, what do you think is the, the one that's causing the biggest problem? Let's tackle that one first. Um, and then we kind of go down the line and, and we, we get at it from that direction. But, but you will commonly see that it's not just one thing contributing to low sexual desire. And the, and the first course, the first question is, does this problem bother you? <laughs> is, it, is it a problem and does it need to be fixed? And are you motivated to do anything about it? Because if they say, gosh, it's really not bothering me that much, then we really don't need to do much about it, right? If it's a problem, if it's causing a problem with relationship or if it's bothering the patient, then we need to figure out what we need to do to address it. You started talking about um, how the perceptions between partners can also affect um, the sort of lack of sexual desire. I was curious, are there, are there any correlations between women who have, heterosexual women who have um, male partners that are also undergoing, say, hormone replacement therapy? Or struggling, like, uh, is there a very high rate of um, co-occurrence between men and women who are partners uh, and having sexual dysfunction or lack of libido? Um, I don't, I don't know that I've seen data on uh, the co-occurrence of low desire in partners, but but it it completely makes sense that um, if one partner is having a problem with sexual function, the other one is going to do. Right. So so it, it, it inherently causes a problem in the relationship. Um, and so, yeah. Is that what you were asking or no? Well, yeah, I asked because my dad um, runs a men's health clinic for men with low testosterone. He prescribes the testosterone replacement therapy and all that. And I was already thinking kind of maybe this would be a problem that would be better tackled by an like, interdisciplinary team that focuses on partner relationships of partners undergoing hormone replacement therapy. I want to get your thought on on that kind of approach. Well, I, I agree with your thinking process there because I, I think one of the um, biggest issues we have for women's sexual health is when they're, you know, they may not have been sexually active as a couple for a while, and then the, the male partner may go in and get a prescription for a PDE5 inhibitor like Viagra or Cialis, and they come home and they're all excited and they get to take it, and an hour later they're ready to go, right? And And the woman who has also had a problem for years, may not be able to fix it in an hour. 
And so there's a huge disconnect there um, when you when you address one part of your sexual function and don't think about the other one. Um, so in terms of the hormone needs, um, you, you know, men and women are different in the way they lose hormones and need hormones. And so I, I wouldn't necessarily think that they were connected, but, but the sexual function is going to be connected for sure. Something that you mentioned briefly that I also was wondering is you said that the sex therapist that you work with has been super helpful. And I was wondering how your role differs from their role. Of course, you have completely different backgrounds, but I'm wondering how they intersect and then maybe how they exist in different spheres. Oh, that's a great question. So for any sexual medicine clinic, um, there, there should be uh, physicians um, and in ours there it's multidisciplinary. So we have clinicians and that could be a nurse practitioner. It could be a physician's assistant. Um, it could be an MD, it could be a DO, um, so any kind of medical provider. But then you, we also have a psychotherapist and, and we have our physical therapy colleagues that we work very closely with. And so that, that uh, triad is, is really, really important when you're talking about sexual health. Um, now the psychologist and sex therapist, what their role is, we typically have the medical providers see them first, see the patient first, then we sort of outline what the issues are and look at the medical issues. But we also, I mean, it's clearly on our radar that the anxiety levels out of control, or there's a history of abuse that needs to be addressed, or for example, this is a primary uh, problem, like a primary anorgasmic problem. So this woman's never had an orgasm. That needs to go to a sex therapist too. Um, so the sex therapist will then take more of the psych, the psychosocial history, the psychiatric history, um, the history of the relationship, the abuse history, untangle it from is this the primary psychiatric disorder like depression that we need to treat? Is there uh, a, a deeper uh, sexual issue that needs to be treated. Is this post-trauma? Is there some sort of traumatic event that needs to be addressed? Um, so, so the sex therapist can tease that apart a little bit more, and they also really work on um, normalizing sexual function for women and can do a lot of education. And we do too, as medical providers, we're providing a lot of, a lot of education, even on anatomy. So for example, in the doctor's office, we have hand mirrors in every office and many women have not looked at their anatomy, if ever. Um, and so we literally walk through and say, here's where your parts are. And you know, uh, you'd be surprised, so many women don't know. Um, and so that's the first part of the education and it goes on from there. And so for some women, this is really sex ed 101. Um, and then sometimes we need to bring the partner in because they need sex ed 101 too. Um, and then we can progress from there. So, so really this, we tease it apart. We um, meet the patient at the level that they are and then take it from there. Um, so I actually had a question about something you mentioned earlier when you were answering Alicia's first question about, you mentioned the correlation between like menopause and cardiovascular disease. And that I thought was really interesting because um, I know that some of your research has been on like menopause with gynecological cancers and women who are kind of thrown into menopause. And my mom has a gynecological cancer, so she has experienced that. And I've like seen that, you know, secondhand from her. So I'm just wondering, how do you see like menopause research and all the ways that women are affected by menopause being integrated into medicine, like being integrated into cardiovascular care, or whatever it is. And like, is it a part of medical education that needs to grow? Is it 
specialty base that needs to take on um, like this new part of women's health in their field or like, how do you think they'll be achieved, I guess? Well, that's a really good question. And I've sat on several national panels to try to address how we do that. And I will tell you that nobody has a great answer right now, but here, here's the issue. Um, is that there's not a lot of menopause education going on right now. Um, it's really falling out of OB-GYN. And the reason for that is OB-GYN is moving to more of a procedural-based specialty and less as an office-based specialty. And so by definition, it's falling more to the internal medicine, family medicine um, fields, and they're not educated in it. They don't, at most an hour, maybe two of education on this topic and, and hormonal medicine and what hormones do. And so it's, it's a bit distressing because that's led to what I call the menopause management vacuum um, in that no one is addressing this and no one is aware of these issues. And, and I challenge you to go into a cardiology residency any, or a fellowship anywhere, and no one is taught the impact of hormones. Um, on the heart or the lack thereof. Uh, so it, it's, it's a challenge. Um, I, I personally feel like internal medicine and family medicine physicians should be picking this up. But if you look at the medical school curriculums, it's, it's tough. I mean, where do you fit it in? And the residency programs, uh, you know, we offer selectives, we offer you know, one month rotations. All, all of our family med residents have to go through the menopause clinic all the OB-GYN residents, all the endocrinology fellows, all the reproductive endocrinology fellows, the internal medicine residents don't have to. And that's largely because there are so many of them, I think that it would be hard for, for us to fit them through. But there's no curriculum right now. And that's quite disturbing because I think we're still graduating our cohort of internal medicine residents without adequate menopause education. This reminds me a lot of the... Um kind of the vacuum in geriatric medicine and end-of-life care, which we, we spoke at length with about with Dr. Ed Cragen on our previous episode. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering if, and we talked a lot about how in those patients, sometimes the, the approach isn't to fix the problem, but rather to address the patient's goals. And I'm wondering if that's also true when you talk about menopause care. I think that's true with any care. Um, if you go in asking what the problem is, you're not asking the right question. So, and that's with any patient with any concern, you need to be asking what the goal is. Um, and the goal may be, I want to run a marathon, in which case my knee pain is getting in the way, or in which case my depression is getting in the way. But if you don't ask what the goal is, you're missing the question. Um, so, so yes, I, I think what, what is your goal is always a question. Um, what are your priorities? And, and again, that's for anybody that's for men, that's for women, that's for any circumstance. But when I walk in the office, I'm, I'm saying, hi, how are you? And, um, tell me about yourself and tell me why you're here. It's not, what are your menopause symptoms and how can I fix them? You know, because maybe that's not what she wants me to do. Right. So I, I think you have to approach it from, from um, uh, what is happening and what got you here, right? So it's what are, your, what are your goals? You talked about a lot of misconceptions regarding menopause and how your research is trying to dispel them. Can you give us maybe a few examples of that? What are some common things that maybe medical students, but also other listeners probably don't know about menopause and dispel some common myths? Well, I think um, a few things. So menopause is this really pivotal time. And um, 
when you think about uh, women, we have estrogen receptors all over our bodies. They're, they're not just in our breasts and our ovaries, they're in our brains, they're in our joints, they're everywhere. And so, first of all, um, you know, menopausal symptoms, do they occur in all of us? No, but they occur in 70 to 80% of us. Um, and, you know, some of the more common symptoms are things like joint aches. And that is because you're going through estrogen withdrawal and your joints and your joints hurt. So, you know, we have a lot of menopausal women hitting the clinics and saying they're tired, they're not sleeping and their joints hurt and they're diagnosed with fibromyalgia. Um, so uh, a lot of people don't even think, uh, that, that these hormone changes could possibly cause that. Um, so I, I think many times the symptoms are, are mistaken for other things. Um, but I think there's a lot of misperceptions about hormone therapy and, uh, the risks and benefits of hormone therapy. Uh, so we still know that hormone therapy is the most effective treatment for menopausal symptoms and for women who are within 10 years of menopause and under the age of 60, the benefits outweigh the risks for the large majority. Um, so for example, heart disease risk is lowered by 30 to 50% uh, for women who use hormone therapy in their 50s. So if you start it later, you start it in your 70s, the risk may be higher, but for women in their 50s, the heart disease risk is significantly lower. So you're protecting the heart, you are protecting the brain. We know that starting hormone therapy later is probably not advantageous to the brain. It can increase dementia risk, but not for women in their 50s. Um, and we also know that the bones are protected. So not only do you get symptom relief, you get bone protection, you get heart protection. Um, brain is neutral to protected, um, right? And there's a lot of misperceptions about that risk-benefit balance and, and even, even breast cancer risk. So we now know that um, estrogen-based therapy is actually associated with a lower risk of breast cancer incidence and mortality um, from the, the Women's Health Initiative study. And it's actually the progestogen component that we use to protect the uterine lining that appears to convey the risk of breast cancer. So um, it, it, you know, it, it goes against what most people think or believe. Um, going off of that, Dr. Fabian, I was wondering, um, so I know that in certain demographics of people, there are different, of course, environmental and socioeconomic factors that play into um, just health in general, but specifically, for example, uterine health and uh, cancer risk, et cetera. And so I'm wondering how um, menopause research or how your research, I can't, I know you can't speak for all research, but how you feel that your research um, has potentially, or how you've incorporated those perspectives um, and try to, I don't know, have those considerations um, in the work that you do and in yeah, terms of access and equity. That's a, a great question. And, you know, I have to say, uh, so our database in Rochester, Minnesota is largely white and married and educated women, um, which is not exactly the most diverse population. Um, there is a lot of work in the field, though, the, the SWAN study, uh, the study of women's health across the nation is one that has intentionally uh, incorporated a, a ethnically racially diverse population and studied the menopause experience across that group. 
Um, we've learned from that that the menopause experience is not the same uh, across all groups and that some groups don't experience hot flashes as much and like Asian Asian women tend to experience less and whether that is a cultural phenomenon where it's just not thought to be an important thing to report or whether they actually truly experience less it is still unclear. Um, African-American women experience more hot flashes. Um, and, and you know there there's so there's there's definite differences and that's another reason why we can't say that one one solution fits all because the experiences are different uh so it's a really a really good point that you make and and in our future studies i mean we're trying to incorporate more uh diverse groups of women but we also need diverse groups of women to participate in research <laughs> so so encouraging these women to participate is key um, and and that takes meaningful engagement, um, boots on the ground engagement to ensure that you have trust and that um, that you are acting in the best interest. So um, there's a lot of complexities to that, but a lot of our efforts now are, are uh, and as we develop our platform for the Center for Women's Health are, are centered around how do we reach women who don't have access to care um, and how do we provide them quality information and uh, the research that they need to make decisions for themselves and families. So we wanted to transition the second half of this discussion onto more leadership topics. And so... Whoa, okay. Thanks, Caleb, for that transition. We are going to pause here. If you liked this conversation and you want to hear the rest of it, because that is only half of the interview, we talked more with Dr. Fabian, Peter, and Caleb about leadership development in women as leaders on the Leading the Rounds podcast. So go over to their podcast and check out the episode titled Why Gender Doesn't Belong in Leadership Conversations with From Skirts to Scrubs and Dr. Stephanie Fabian. Yes. And as always, if you liked our episode and you want to check us out some more, you should subscribe. We're available on all the podcasting apps. And also, if you want to leave a rating and review, you should definitely do that. And Apple Podcasts is the best place for it. And you can also follow us on social media. We are From Skirts to Scrubs on Instagram and on Facebook. And you can also check out our website for more information and our show notes and sources and merch and all those good things at FromSkirtsToScrubs.com. Yes. And as our podcast grows, we're interested in doing more collaborations like this one and making bonus content for you all. So if you or someone you know is interested in working with us, shoot us an email, send us an Insta DM, so reach out. <laughs> and so lastly, here is to the women who fought for us to be where we are today. And may we do the same for those who come after us. Yay. See you next time. Bye guys. Bye.